Hello and welcome to Shame Spiral. I'm Ellie Kremendahl, a psychotherapist turned comedian, and this is the podcast where I low-key use my therapy skills to interview guests about all things shame. This week, I spiraled out with Marissa Crane. Marissa is so cool. We had such a great conversation. And they are the author of a pretty newly emerging onto the world and literary scene novel called I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself. It's so amazing. I read it so quickly. It's a queer dystopian novel. You need to go buy it right now. Trust me. It's wonderful. And Marissa is also working on a new novel, which we talk about a little bit in the episode. All they told me, which I will now tell you just because it's so exciting, is that it's a queer basketball coming of age story. What? Does anything sound more amazing? I don't think so. I also just want to say I call Marissa Mac several times. I think all all the times, all the times that I mention them, I call them Mac in this episode. It's because they also go by Mac. Marissa is what they use professionally, literarily. I don't think that's a word, but that's fine. Um, But just so, you know, just so you know. And so you're not like, what, what did Ellie not know their name this entire time? My, my little shame spirals for this week. I mean, one is that right now I'm so tired. I am a part of a queer artist residency that my husband is the one of the co-directors of, and I'm kind of like on the team. We're getting ready for all the artists who arrive tomorrow. And I'm just a shit show. It's a lot. It's so exciting, but I just feel maniacal right now and simultaneously so tired. And my other little shame thing is that um, I co-host a queer comedy show in Brooklyn called Gay Shame. We had our first show last month and it was so fun and amazing. Amanda Seyfried co-hosted with um, me and my co-host, Sharia Mattis, who's another Brooklyn comedian. We had the fucking best time ever. It was such a high. And we have our next show in just a couple weeks. It's July 23rd at Littlefield for anyone who lives in New York City. Please come. And the shame part is that we're just not doing that great with ticket sales and that's fine. I know a lot of people come, you know, last minute, but ugh, I just feel really shamey about it. And I feel like, oh, right. Everyone probably just came because Amanda Seyfried was there. Duh. But I don't know. I don't know why I feel ashamed about it. It's silly. Come to gay shame. Come. Tickets are available in my Instagram bio, Twitter, all the things. We also have an Instagram account at Gay Shame Comedy. It's going to be so fun, even though Amanda Seyfried will not be there. And that's all I have for you all today. I cannot wait to share this episode with Marissa with you. We had such a time. Please enjoy. So without further ado, let's start spiraling with Marissa Crane. Shame burning in my brain. Always in a frame. And I've only myself to blame Shame Wishing I could forget my name And crawl back up from where I came I'm going down the spiral once again 
shame spiral. Last time I used this platform, it was the same thing. The interviewer was like, is there perhaps a dog? And then I um, moved to the couch so that he would sit with me. And he made me like pet him the entire time on the couch. I was like doing it, but I had one hand on him at all time. That's so funny. I know I get it. <laughs> but we got it. Okay, cool. Um, so hi, Mac. I'm so happy that you're here. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm stoked. I've been really looking forward to this. Tell me more because I usually ask people how they feel knowing that we're about to launch and do a whole conversation about shame and people's responses run the gamut in terms of how comfortable or uncomfortable they feel with that. So how how do you feel about it? Yeah, um, I love talking about shame. It's just um, my book is really centered around shame and like the whole um, like reason I even wrote it was like because I was thinking about so much of my shame and like mm-hmm. the far reaching consequences of it and all of the other like sticky ways that it, it just affects your life. Um, so it's something that is like it's weird to be excited about shame, but I, I it's something that I love to talk about. And I feel like, you know, people are starting to share openly more, whereas maybe mm-hmm. something like growing up and even, you know, my early 20s where nobody was talking about shame, like people were starting a little bit to be like, oh, I'm anxious or like sometimes <laughs> use some like very light mental health words, like, um, <laughs> you know, but there was no like yeah. I have this profound shame or like this thing that I'm carrying around. Um, so I like that, like sort of we as a society are moving towards like talking about this and sharing our experiences. I love that too. And I really relate to the, like, even in college, I think it was a pretty big deal for me too, for people to be like, well, I'm a little depressed, like, like, but scared to say it. Like it was just, there was, it was still so stigmatized to have any kind of mental health struggle. Totally. We didn't even have the language. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like also like people would feel more comfortable to maybe say like, I feel depressed, but like never to say like, I have depression or something. Oh yeah. So like people were like, I feel like could gently talk about the feeling or like, I, you know, like I might be like, oh, I'm feeling anxious right now, but like never was I like, capital a anxiety disorder like capital d depression um Mm -hmm. those like they you know they felt so labeling where it was like oh no i just have this feeling for now (laughs) yeah and that maybe that was sort of to protect against whatever feelings of shame might accompany owning it yeah yeah i mean i I don't think it's weird at all to be excited to talk about shame obviously like (laughs) i love talking about it i it's so exciting to me that you love talking about it. And I'm not surprised at all because of your <laughs> book. Like, you know, people listening, some of you may not have read Mac's book yet. It's so good. It's called I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself. You need to go read it right now. Um, but like pages in, I was I think we'd already made a plan to have you come on before I'd read your book. <laughs> And pages in, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) This makes so much sense to me. Like, there's this line I'm going to get wrong and you can correct me. But um, that really hit me in the in the best possible way. It it made me feel so sort of recognized that in the very beginning of the book, it's something like um, 
okay, so your main character is talking about like losing their wife and wanting to just like go blackout drink and and they're like i want to correct me but it's something like i want to be in this shit and i want to like it or something what is the line like sit in my filth and like it (laughs) sit in my filth and like it and i feel like that was my ethos my entire 20s and it's fucked up it's terrible but there is that weird like yes like i want to be in this just rotting carcass of existence (laughs) And I was so curious to hear more from you about like your relation. Obviously, you are not your character, but like your relationship to that sentiment in in regards to shame also. Yeah, um, it could definitely apply to my 20s as well. Um, I think there is something appealing for me, like if I put myself in this bad space, like it's protective in a way like if somebody else hurt me or, you know, if I was vulnerable and then like that came back to bite me and then I had to like sit in my filth, like that wasn't as appealing. But it was like, if I just self-sabotaged and like just went all in on it and was like, I'm going to commit all the way, like to just being a shithead and like doing whatever. Um, that, that like felt more empowering. Like I'm the one responsible for my destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody else. And I can like own that. Um, yeah. So I, I think that was like, you know, yeah. A lot of layers of protection around me and, and sort of subscribing to that ethos. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Like I've created my own pig pen. It's yeah. <laughs> a way that feels less vulnerable for sure because you're there's the idea that you're in control of it mm. and if like somebody calls you a mess you're like yeah i i did this like on purpose. yeah it's my like, mess yeah. yeah you can't hurt me with with any type of words like i'm doing this on purpose <laughs> <laughs> oh my god what's your relationship like historically with shame like growing up did you feel it a lot you know we started immediately talking about like not even having those words as a young person so what's the sort of trajectory been like for you with that relationship I think like just as a person like maybe my temperament is like shame prone I I would say um but yeah like I didn't know those words so I think I knew you know as a kid I had you know like internalized homophobia and um sort of everything that comes along with that but I also had shame about well it's all connected right but like I had so much anger and rage inside of me that really was like inexplicable like I had no idea what I had to be like so furious about at like such a young age you know even like six or seven like I feel like starting then I just had this really deep-rooted rage and my parents like didn't know what to do with it really. And like, they would just shame me and like, sorry, parents, please don't listen to this. Um, like sh- shame me. And I feel like a very typical, like nineties parents way where they would just be like, you have nothing to, to feel angry or sad about like buck up or like whatever. So then that would obviously like pile the shame on top. Cause then I'd be like, Whoa, they're right. Like my, you know, my life seems pretty good. So like, why am I feeling this way? And then Mm -hmm. it just creates that cycle. That's like impossible to get out of. And also just impossible to like piece apart all these things because they're all affecting each other. Right. So it's like, I was depressed and angry and 
a latent homosexual. Like <laughs> same, same, same. <laughs> you know, like having crushes on my teammates when I'm really young, like yeah. just all of this stuff sort of like intermixing and making this really weird storm of just like confusion. Like just genuinely like what is going on here? <laughs> like, mm. and I feel like that, that like inability to understand yourself, like can really also pile the shame on more. Like, so as I've gotten older and I've been able to sort of like interrogate my own feelings and, and the why behind them, like even just having the understanding and insight is, is helpful. Um, and sort of lift some of that shame, like, so I can still totally. be like, oh, I don't want to feel this. But I'm like, okay, like, let me think about why this is happening. And, you know, starting to not treat feelings like good or bad and, and things like that. Yeah. And just acknowledging them. Um, but, you know, that's taken so long. And it's been such a slow, wild, precarious process. It's really, it's such a pile on when you have all of those confusing, complicated feelings. And then on top of it. The messages you get from family, from society are kind of like, and you should feel bad for having those feelings. And there's something wrong with you actually for having those feelings. You said like, it just makes it so much harder. It really does. I mean, to even attend to the original feeling, there's so much yeah. shit to sift through on your way. Yeah. When you're I just like yeah. trying to be a person, like, and figure you're out how to be a trying. person. And I, I know. And like, you know, you're obviously a parent too. So I'm sure you like get it in the sense of like now from a parenting perspective, I think of everything that he's, my kid's two and a half, like everything that he's doing is a new skill, like emotional regulation is a skill, which like people have historically not treated that way. I feel like often. Um, mm -hmm. And like, so then every time he's like throwing a tantrum because like he can't find his car or whatever, I'm like, he is a brand new person. He's never done this before. He's never had to solve this particular problem before. He's never had to like figure out how to calm down. Treating it that way is so much gentler. Like he has to learn this thing, just like he has to learn how to pull his pants up. Thinking about as me as a kid, like I, you know, wish someone had that sort of grace or whatever. Like, you're trying mm -hmm. to be a person you don't know how to do anything and you're just sort of like fumbling through life but everybody's like telling you like oh you can't feel these things or you can't react in a certain way or mm -hmm. um you have to feel grateful for you know whatever life that you've been hurled into <laughs> yeah oh my gosh yeah that's such a great way i feel like that mindset sounds so helpful of like he's never done this before. I feel like I'm going to steal that and tell my partner too, because like my parents, you know, also very nineties parents and very similar vibe in, in the realm of what you said about, like, you have nothing to feel um, angry about. Like, why would you be depressed? There's, you have literally nothing to feel depressed about. Also like this behavior is just unacceptable. Like it doesn't matter what you feel, just like yeah. be better. <laughs> yeah. The behavior, <laughs> the behavior is bad. And it's so funny because as we're talking about that, I had a thought, a, a kind of new thought for myself where it's like, yeah, like now as a parent, I kind of understand the impulse to do that because sometimes their behaviors are so frustrating and it, taps into all your stuff mm -hmm. and you I can see the appeal of being just like like just be grateful and shut up you know <laughs> like yeah. th that makes sense psychologically 
and it just is so damaging. You know, there's there's so many opportunities we have as parents to at least try to create a landscape of less shame, even though we like it's impossible to do it perfectly. Oh, for sure. And like, I don't mean to say that I'm perfect uh, <laughs> in uh, performing my patience of emotional, you know, regulation skills. I obviously, you know, have the same impulses as well, especially when it's like uh, rushing to get him out of the house for daycare because I have a podcast recording and I have to get, and I have yeah. to get him there and he doesn't want to go yet. And he goes, not yet. I'm not ready. And I'm like, okay, like I understand that you aren't ready, but I got to do something. And it's like when there's a behavior, then he like, we walk to the car and he gets distracted halfway to the car and he like starts digging a hole in the ground or something. And I'm like, I want this behavior to stop. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't care that you love digging right now, but it's like, I know it's really, it's such a tricky little dance to be sort of like, I totally understand that what you want is to dig. And I validate that. Yeah. However, get in the car. Like a lot lately about the intersection of like, of like capitalism and um, like hustle culture and, and parenting, because I was recently unemployed for a few months. And I all of a sudden like had a lot more time in my day to be patient with him. Like I didn't have to rush him out the door to daycare because I didn't have anything that I had to do. Like, of course there were like errands and like, I was trying to, you know, do my own writing and stuff, but all of a sudden there wasn't this like deadline. So like one day, like before I started working, he was like, I'm not ready to go yet. I want to stay here and play for a little bit. So I said, okay, how about, you know, we like made this compromise. I was like, let's go outside and like scoot or whatever you wanted to do for like 20 minutes. And then when you're feeling ready, we're going to leave. But like, we have to leave then once we do this. And he was like, okay, he was so much more agreeable. We like did the thing. And then 20 minutes later, he was like, okay. And then just marched out the door and went to the car. And I was like, wow, like this is so much easier when there isn't like this deadline hanging over Mm -hmm. me or like this time, like this meeting or this thing that I have to be to. there's just so much more space for that as like an exchange and not a like do this. Um, and like, it was really nice. And then like, it started working again and I'm like back to the like sort of impatience. So it's all like, it's sort of coming to a head for me about like so much of that impatience is like related to the rushing of capitalism and literally time being money and all of this ridiculous stuff. How do you, generally process that like do you feel really angsty do you feel angry (laughs) I do feel a little angsty um Uh yeah and it it makes me mad because like you know back to shame like there's so much parenting shame that I feel um and guilt like surrounding the things that we have to do dropping him off at daycare all day even though I know socialization Mm -hmm. is is good for him um you know, the times where I'm impatient and forcing him out the door and he's tantruming and things like that, like those, you know, make me feel so ashamed. I'm a bad parent. And then I have to double back on myself and say, there's no such thing as good and bad. And let's not think in these binaries and like bully myself um, into more helpful thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like basically my whole book just like manifest. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I get it. But then like, 
that's what capitalism wants is like for me to like individually blame myself. So then I like step back and I'm like, no, like I can't be mad at myself all the time. Like this isn't just a me problem. Like this is coming from this like larger systemic issue. And that actually helps me a little bit, even though it's like not something that I can change (laughs) at least Mm -hmm. on a macro level, but it's something that I can at least like help take some of the shame off of me so that I can still like function as a person and a parent and a partner and everything like that. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Yeah, it kind of it it implicates the system at least to a degree, rather than all of that being about you failing mm-hmm. because you're just falling short as a person in all these ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have to tell you one quick thing, which is that I'm no so we're you can't see this, listeners, but like we're recording with video right now. <laughs> I I'm a little bit sick, which you can probably hear. I feel like I look so high to the point where I'm distracted. Like, I feel like my eyes are so glassy and I can't believe how glassy they are. And I just had a whole spiral about like, I hope Mac doesn't think I'm high. Like I, I'm publicly sober. Like it would really <laughs> upset me if if they thought I relapsed or something. But my eyes look crazy. So I'm just telling you, I just have a cold. <laughs> I and also you're that. probably not even thinking about my eyes it's just self-centeredness but I wasn't thinking about your eyes but I was thinking that you're probably sick because I could t- hear you in your voice a bit yeah um and then I was thinking like should I say something like should I thank you for still meeting with me even though you're sick um <laughs> it's so funny I know yeah. I, I like you know I love and appreciate the transparency of processing like a tiny shame spiral in real time like thinking about your eyes um mm-hmm. destigmatizing glassy eyes one podcast at a time. Yeah, the glassy eyes community, it's our day. I'm <laughs> <laughs> tired. When you were talking about it being on video, I thought you were gonna say something about my background because I like never pay attention to what's behind me. And I was on a call the other day and someone was like, cool jumbo goldfish. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I see the goldfish, I see the holistic dog treats. <laughs> Which to me, it screams California, which I know is where you live. Yeah. Um, I love it. Okay. So we're going to play the shame game. A little bit of a pivot. I'm going to present you a couple scenarios and want you to consider which of them would give you a worse shame spiral. And then we can kind of unpack why a little bit. Okay. Got it. All right. Okay. So. Okay, so let's just say I'm going to take a guess, although I could be wrong. But um, let's just say that you're someone who, like, generally, even if you think it's delicious, would not eat at Chick fil A because they're virulently homophobic in policy and stance and all of that. Okay, but I think, like, we can all agree that it's really disappointing on many levels, one of which is that Chick-fil-A is like kind of delicious as far as fast food goes. So let's just say, even if none of this would ever happen to you, that um, you you're you will not eat at Chick-fil-A because it's fucked up. And one day you are like so hungry and it has been a terrible day. You've been like wrangling your kid, working. You're finally alone. You have like 10 minutes to eat and you're like... You see a Chick-fil-A in the distance and you're like, 
damn, I want one of those chicken sandwiches. And you're like, no one will know. Like it's one time. And you're even doing like, you're kind of like all the years I've spent not giving a Chick-fil-A kind of makes it okay that this like one time Chick-fil-A. So you do, you get the Chick-fil-A. And then someone in the drive-thru while you're there happens to snap a picture of you. Let's just say they recognize you from TikTok or something. And a a picture of you eating Chick-fil-A goes viral and you have to like speak to it. It's like, you know, like queer, like, like outspoken queer author, you know, eating Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And then you have to, so that's a whole thing. That's number one. Wow. Um, And people are really mad about it. They're like really disturbed. Um, Number two. Okay. Number two is that so <laughs> what? You're like these are like amazing stories. They're like flash fiction. They're totally flash fiction. Okay, so number two is that just a particular little subset of young queer people have some issue with your book. Mm-hmm. And they're there, I could honestly, when I was writing this scenario, I had a really hard time even imagining like what it could be, which I think speaks to the fact that your book is awesome. But they're basically like decide that one little piece of it is like out of touch and around representation or something like that. And make like a, again, like a TikTok about like take like calling calling you out in this way and a lot a bunch of young queer people kind of get on board with that and they're sort of just like you know matt crane is so like millennial and like cringe and their depictions <laughs> of queer people it's so embarrassing like that kind of thing and similar level of exposure as to the chick-fil-a where like it's a it's a thing, but both of them will die down in like a couple weeks. Okay. So which which of those would be more shameful for you? Well, these, the, I got to hand it to you. Like, these are so specific and so biting. Um, <laughs> I, <clears throat> so the second one, like where they're with the TikTok and the young people, are they, saying something's like problematic or are they just making fun of me for like being cringe and out of touch? It's such a good question. And I'm not surprised that you're unclear because I think that I was unclear. Like I couldn't really decide when I was (laughs) creating this partially because I couldn't find, like, I don't really think there's anything problematic. So here, here's what it is to specify it at core there. It's not problematic. Like, you know that your Mm. people know that it's not problematic, but these handful of young queer people, they do think it's problematic and they are standing by that and saying that. So it's like their truth, but it's not the objective truth, even though I know that gets sticky. Like, yeah, but there is a hard, there are facts, like there are hard facts sometimes. (laughs) And let's just say that the hard facts are on your end. And, okay. and maybe what's coming up for these folks is more about like trauma and like personal stuff and whatever. It's getting projected onto your book. Totally. I, I do think this changes my answer. Like um, I would spiral harder about the problematic young queer people. Um, not so much like 
because of how I'm perceived or anything. Like you said, like that stuff tends to die down. Like it wouldn't be so much me related, but I would spiral so hard about like thinking about harming, harming people and and any potential Mm -hmm. like hurt that I've, I've caused, um, especially people like maybe sharing these, these specific stories or, you know, relating it back to them, which people tend to do. Um, and because the book is so personal to me, like Chick-fil-A is, it's, it's personal to me in that political way of not wanting to support them. But like, I didn't birth it. Like the book is yeah. like, my, you know, my book is my baby. And and so yeah. I think it's like, I ha- obviously have like this deep attachment to it in a way that I feel defensive of it, but also would crumble and, and really hate it if I hurt somebody with this thing. Um, and it would, you know, it would send me down a spiral, even if you're saying there's like an objective truth of it being unproblematic, I would still be like, did I not do my due diligence? Like, you know, should I have gotten more sensitivity? Like there would just be a lot of that type of thing. Like, could I, could I have done more, um, to prevent these types of things? Like, you know, what are my own sort of things that I'm not seeing? Um, and that would make me really ashamed, but at the same time, like it would maybe challenge me to like do even more diligence for the next book like so it's also mm-hmm. like sort of, but also like shame can do that to you um now so yeah it's hard to piece apart but it's like the chick-fil-a i think it was like <laughs> i think it's like what you're saying like i'm a parent i'm exhausted it's like the worst day ever like i think i would just own something like that and and speak to that in like a very human way and just be like yeah listen like like this is the deal and like this is what happened and I'm not proud about it but like these things happen and you can't expect people to like be perfect in every single moment of their lives um totally so yeah I don't yeah yeah I feel very similarly that even if I felt pretty sure that there wasn't anything problematic it would well I mean it's just it's like it's so tricky because I would be like well there must be something I missed like I sh- I need to listen to what these people are saying and potentially learn something. But I think that gets so tricky, like you were intimating, like when shame is involved and it's kind of like, because sometimes there is really something you need to learn and reflect. Sometimes it is people's trauma, like spilling out onto whatever pre- projective device. And then it's like not actually yours to internalize. And I guess the whole process of trying to discern that, like all of that would be spirally for me. Yeah. And I was going to say like, and it's like, how do you learn the skill of sort of navigating what to be open to and, and what to be like, no, like this really isn't like useful or helpful. Um, I know. On like a, you know, it's already hard enough to learn on like a workshopping level. If you're just literally workshopping a piece and you're getting critique, when you're getting all this stuff from different directions, like you learn to filter out what's helpful and what's not helpful. But like when we're talking like, like ethics and like, mm-hmm. um, it, it gets like, how are you supposed to even know really? And I feel like that is the shame can distort, obviously, like, um, your perception of things and, and, your mental yeah. state. So then if you're feeling so much shame about this thing that happened, it's hard to really piece apart. Like, okay, does this make sense for me to take a step back and listen? Or is it gonna just 
be even more harmful to sort of internalize all of these other people's things than they are internalizing. Like then we're just passing all this stuff back and forth. I know that is so true. Yeah. And the shame can make you sort of, sometimes the, the impulses that come up, I think are meant to sort of do whatever it's like triaging, like whatever, what, what can I do to just alleviate this Mm. feeling as fast as possible. So sometimes it feels like, well, I'll just take it. I'll just eat all that shit and then disappear for a while. Maybe I should just pull my book from the shelves. I mean, then I can feel clean again, you know, or like, I feel like part of that is kind of going back to where we started about maybe not learning how to tolerate difficult feelings and, and, trusting that you can like sit with something really hard and be okay with it and it won't kill you and you don't need to go away forever you know like those (laughs) are all skills too extreme reactions and and you know yeah what really sucks and it's something that I like feel like I need to acknowledge or like that I have acknowledged but I sometimes forget to bring to the forefront is like I try to give other people so much grace and forgiveness for things and like I'm really not an advocate of cancel culture. And I think like a lot of these things are related to like, um, you know, the prison industrial complex and like our punitive impulses. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, like I read this book called like, We Will Not Cancel Us and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice by Adrian Mm. um, Mary Brown. And like, oh, cool. I want to read that. Yeah. And it's so, it's so good at like sort of, differentiating like when someone just like accidentally harms someone versus like really major things and like people are having trouble like separating them and they give the same treatment to somebody who like made made a genuine mistake and who means well and who is like a member of this community or, or whatever the case may be and that there's obviously so many so much space for restorative justice there and like for healing and mm-hmm. um you know, versus really egregious things. And people will knee jerk cancel someone for all of the things all over the spectrum um, without really thinking about the consequences of that. And also like how pylons are like police and surveillance. Um, And this is getting into something completely different, but what I'm trying to say is that I feel so much shame and don't forgive myself or give myself very much grace for things where, you know, in the same situations, I would be much gentler for someone else. Um, totally. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's very relatable for a lot of people, but it's like, if, if you can do that for somebody else, then it's like, why can't I gift myself that? And, and what's like that barrier? Like, what is it that I'm not, I'm not able to give myself that same thing. What do you think that barrier is for you? Like, why don't you deserve that? I was just going to say that word deserve, like, yeah, um, we arbitrarily like decide like who deserves what, like, and, and include ourselves in that categorization. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I think it's like always being harder on myself, believing I don't deserve love and forgiveness, um, you know, mm-hmm. because I make these mistakes and missteps or harm people. Um, Mm-hmm. even in acknowledging that we all harm people in you know various ways all the time um i know yeah 
<laughs> it's I, 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 one, I totally relate to that. I'm sure a lot of people listening will too. And one of the examples I often come back to for myself, because it's so, it makes it so stark in a way where I have to sort of acknowledge the dissonance is like, I used to provide therapy on a, in a prison, like a psychiatric prison unit. And a lot of my patients had like killed people, had sexually assaulted people. The worst things you can do to, to another human, a lot they had done. It was that level of like um, criminal stuff. And I was like, like when I, like people would be like, how can you have empathy? Like, and I was always, because I genuinely felt this way, like they're, pe- like they're human, like they are people and they have all been hurt. The more I learn about every one of them, I, all I see is suffering mm. and it's like, I don't think it's good what they did. And I think they deserve grace. Like that came naturally to me. I, and then I will be like, I was a bitch to my sister and I do not deserve love. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Literally though. It's crazy. It's yes. That it's pretty much exactly that. I know. What, what is that? Like psychologically. <laughs> I mean, I don't think everyone is built this way and I don't like to be reductive, but I will say that I think for me, a good portion of it had to do with growing up closeted, knowing that there was some kind of lady I was supposed to be growing up to be and, and knew at in my heart before I really had the language that, that I was not going to be that. And, um, and I think I felt like I had just failed on this deep cellular level as a person. And it was just a matter of time before I disappointed everybody. And I don't know. I think that's not all of it, but that that made a dent. I mean, in making I mean, that's me feel a, that's a really big right. Thing. Yeah, it's a lot at once, and it's like thinking about who we are and who we become. Like, is so much influenced by everybody else's expectations. Like, mm-hmm. obviously societal, and then the people that are closest to us. Like, it just makes you wonder, like, what would have happened if you were just like. I don't know. Been raised without any expectations. Like there's love, but like an absence of expectation. Like, is that even possible? Probably not. But like, if you could take that like out, it's like, what does that even look like? I know. I feel like I'm trying to do that. Like trying to just be like my only expectations for you are to be like, I don't know, like, um, I don't even think I've ever said I expect anything. I guess like in like in quiet, constant ways, we try to be like, we expect you to try to be like kind, like move through the world with kindness and to like care about yourself and others and to care about something, Mm -hmm. which I guess is a kind of expectation. Like it's okay to not care about anything, but, (laughs) but is it, I don't know. (laughs) I expect you to not care not give a shit about anything (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's hard okay i have one more shame game question for you all right (laughs) okay this one's so silly okay so you are gonna go on the drew barrymore show to talk about your book it is so exciting to you (laughs) (laughs) 
And you start spiraling before the show. Like just you start having a lot of anxiety about like what you're going to look like on national TV. And you decide you are going to go get Botox, which let's just say you've never had it before. I'm looking at you. You look like a little baby. You do not. No one needs Botox, but it would be (laughs) shocking to me if you got Botox. But like, it's not about reality, obviously. Like, you're just kind of like, I'm going to get because a friend of yours was like, Mac, you will look like you got 14 hours of sleep. It'll be amazing. (laughs) And you're like, okay, I'm going to go get it. You get it. And it something goes awry. It gives you that like one droopy eyelid. Mm. And then I don't know if you've ever seen this happen, but like that weird thing where like you can't fully smile. Like it like squishes your smile. Yeah. Yeah. So and and it doesn't go away before the interview. So then you're like Andrew Barrymore and your face is all fucked up. It's all Oh my gosh. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is that same basic premise. You're going on Drew Barrymore. Um, you get the Botox. It goes great. You love it. You love how you look. It's seamless. No one would ever know. And then backstage, you are chatting with Drew. And Drew is like, okay, like I know this is kind of like personal, but like, can I ask you, like, did you get Botox recently? Because I know you're like in your 30s, you just look like you're like 23. Like, what's your secret? And you are embarrassed that you got Botox and you look Drew Barrymore in the face, queen of vulnerability and honesty. And you say, no, I have not had Botox. And she's like, wow, really? Oh my God. Like, I'm so jealous. Like, I, I like, oh. And then she starts kind of talking about like her feelings about aging. And she's like, you're like sitting there like, I need to be honest with her right now. She will totally get it. Drew will go with me in my confession. But then you just you commit to the lie because you just can't tolerate it. And then you just have to live with that, that you lied <laughs> to Drew Barrymore's face. Like I can never. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <sighs> this is so hard. And I will, I will be honest here. I've had Botox before. You have? Tell me everything I wanted so bad. <laughs> I will tell you. And I'm also an advocate of like honesty and transparency about it. So it's also hard for me to acknowledge the second scenario. Because again, mm. it's like the, the shame thing. I don't like want to feel yeah. ashamed about decisions that I make. I will yeah. say I probably never would have gotten it in my life if I still lived in Philly. But like moving to San Diego, like it's, you know. Everyone me. gets it. Yeah, but but it wasn't so much like I don't I don't feel any type of way about looking like older necessarily, but it's like this like hard line down the people not watching between the eyebrows, the elevens. Like it always like would look like I'm scowling and like I sort of just like hated that thing. So I was like, let me see what happens if I just like, you know, freeze that mm-hmm. up a bit. Um it was fine. Like I've only gotten it a couple times. It's not like how I don't have the money the way that you would mm-hmm. need to have it to like whatever. Um, but you know, like, yeah, I'm a, I guess I'm just, yeah, I've done it before. I don't look like a baby. I've got, you know, the screen is really helpful. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in college in a tanning bed and that really just, that really just sent me straight to hell. I got to uh-huh. college and all my basketball teammates were like, um, so we like go to the tanning beds. We look good in our home white jerseys. And I was like, makes sense to me. 
It's so funny. Yeah. So which one would be worse for you then? <laughs> well, as much as I don't like lying, I <laughs> I don't think the second one would send me through a spiral as much as like looking absolutely ridiculous on national television. Um, yeah. And maybe not, like if it was just like I was having a, a bad hair day or a bad something day, I'd be able to live with that. But like the obnoxiousness of my face, like drooping and being scrunched and like looking completely unnatural, like as an individual, like as a human being. And I think I would feel secondhand shame for like Drew having to pretend that I look normal. Like um, you would be like, you're burdening Drew. Yeah. <laughs> And like anyone around me, like all of the people working there, like the stage, like everybody would have to be like in on this sort of pretending and like politeness of like, hey, Max, so great to have you. Like, Oh, my God. Like it would be a big charade. That's what your fantasy would be. Although yeah. it's like, who's to say, like, what if your face always looks like that? <laughs> like they don't know. <laughs> But that fantasy, I feel like that's the part that's so shame rooted that like you would imagine that everyone is working so hard to attend to like the grotesqueness of your Botox accident face, you know? Yeah. And I feel when like, it's like yeah. probably no one would give a shit. It, like, like <laughs> in reality, so used to it. Like, they'd be it would like, just be you thinking yeah, about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. They'd be like, we see this every day. Everyone here looks Botoxed all the hell. <laughs> I have yeah. to say, I, I love that you publicly said that you have had Botox. I think that's really bold and powerful because you're like not supposed to admit it or something. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just, I, I respect and admire that. I totally, like I fantasize about getting it. I never have. And honestly, to be totally honest, because I cannot afford it. Like if I could afford yeah. it, I definitely would have tried the the biggest besides money. The thing that scares me the most, and I feel like this is really related to shame, is that something bad will happen. It'll make my mm -hmm. face look crazy. And then and then I feel like it feels more vulnerable to be seen as someone who cares enough about aging, like who has as that much like have that many feelings about aging to to pay for Botox, then that feels more vulnerable than like my wrinkles. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. being exposed yeah. as someone who cares about my wrinkles feels worse than my wrinkles. That's my fear. <laughs> That's my fear. Yeah. I think the first time I went, I like was, they were like, you know, they immediately come in hard with their like recommendations of what to do to your face, which is like, I think if you're not like solid and like what you want, like that could totally bulldoze someone to be like, yeah, totally like put uh, 200 units like all over my face or whatever. But I was just like, no, I just want between my eyebrows. Like I just want, I don't want this like hard line down the middle, like whatever. And I think they were like, okay, like 20 units or whatever, which is like standard, like for that spot, because mm -hmm. it's like a strong muscle. Um, but I was like, no, 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 because I was really worried about it looking too frozen because I didn't want people mm -hmm. to know that I'd had or been able to tell. So then they were like, I was like asking for like 10 units or something. And they were like, that's not going to do anything. Like, what are you here for? Like, so we had this like all back and forth. And they were like, you don't want people to be able to tell, but you also don't want it to do anything. Like, what is the point of this? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like a lot of that going into it. That's um, so funny. But afterward, like after maybe two or three times, I was like, I don't feel any shame about this. I don't care. But also there's no way that anybody can tell in that spot, yeah. at least in my opinion. And if they can, I don't care. And I will be like, yeah. Um, but it's like taken a little bit to get there. But now I'm like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I love trying that. to own these these certain things and destigmatize them. Like I have a lot of friends here who I think like are sort of like in in your position where they're like, oh, I wish I could get Botox or like whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, when you really want something, so you like sort of hate on other people for having it. Like I'll yeah. have friends who I suspect want to try it and they'll be like oh she's so botoxed or whatever and i'm like yeah the thing we should be jealous of is her money but <laughs> exactly i feel yeah i feel like that just comes out around spots where you're disowning your own feelings you know yeah. like if you can really own that like i want that then you that the feeling doesn't need to come out in judgment toward the other person yeah You know, you're just having the feeling. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I asked you to bring a story of something from your life that made you have a big shame spiral. Are you ready to share it? I am ready. All right. It's it's sort of like a two-part situation. Um, so the first one first part is like non-specific in the way that it's not like necessarily a story story, but it's just something I feel like I I don't talk about with a lot of people, especially at this point in my life. But like I used to cheat on a lot of people when I was younger, you know, serial cheater, if you will, Um, you know, like throughout college and um, sort of my early 20s. And, you know, we could unpack whatever that's connected to for like 500 hours. Um, (laughs) But you know, I I felt so much shame around it, like even while I was doing it. And it was like sort of just this cycle where, you know, like I couldn't get out of it. I would feel more ashamed and then I would do it more like um, mm-hmm. sort of in the way that like other things work, like depression and other, you know, I don't know, compulsive behaviors. Like I was obviously doing it to cope with something, mostly vulnerability. I think I did not want to feel vulnerable with a partner and I felt like, okay, mm-hmm. I can protect myself by by doing this, this thing, you know, even though it was hurtful. And so that, so then there was a period of time I was like, I'm never going to do this again. I don't like hurting people. I don't like lying. I, you know, I don't like all of these things. Like it, it doesn't feel consistent with who I am as a, as a person. And I want to, you know, embrace these values and, and live in a way that's aligned with them. And, um, so, you know, like I, I, I was in, plenty of relationships after that where, um, you know, monogamous, monogamous relationships where I was faithful and, um, I was like feeling good about where I was at in my life. And I'm like, I'm maturing, I'm gaining these coping skills, these communication skills, all of the things that are really needed to have like an enriching, meaningful relationship. All this to say, then the way that I met my wife is because we were both cheating on our partners at the time. And that's, and that's like a hard thing to, um, I guess just deal with because it's like, we're married now. We, we have this life together. We have a kid and, and I don't think of it too often, but like people always ask like, how did you meet? And, and like that story, it like it, I can't unstick myself from Mm. how we met. Um, 
So, you know, we don't like just tell random people every time they're like, how, how did you meet? Um, the shameful parts of that story, you know, it's, it's like the sanitized version of like where we met and, and, da, 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 and usually they're like, cool, great. Um, but every time I'm asked that question, then I'm reminded of, of the actual like truth and the weight of it behind it. And um, yeah, and it's like those people are married and happy as far as I know now which makes it a little bit easier to to sort of deal with um but i think it's just like the way that it's interlaced with our meeting story and our history that um and the way that it it was a return to previous behaviors that i had been really pleased that i had like given up and moved past and and not done anymore so it was like sometimes i tell people the story of like actually how we met and they're like well it makes it okay because you got your wife out of it. Like I've, that's like people's justification for this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is very interesting the way that people can justify stuff because it's like if I didn't get my wife out of it, then it would have just been plain old cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I mean, it's that. So that's sort of the thing that like it's hard to let go and it sticks with me and I carry it around. But you know, it's it's. I try to leave it in the past as, as far as like, this isn't ever going to happen again. Um, but yeah, it's just, I guess the way that it's intertwined with my present mm-hmm. makes it sort of just this, like a sort of ever present shame. Do you ever have the thought because of that entanglement? Like, like I don't deserve my wife. Like I don't deserve happiness because it came about in this, infidelity kind of way um yeah certainly early on um i think that that yeah was something that i had to deal with and was affecting our relationship i think early on because it was like we're trying to separate ourselves from this thing that we did and now we're trying to start this life together um but i'm carrying so much shame that that all of that is just compounding in a way that it's not a great way to start a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think like, and that was sort of the crux of it, like all along was that I didn't feel like I deserved love because of this behavior. So then I would enact the behavior because I felt like I didn't deserve love. Totally. So stupid. Um, do not recommend. No. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, so it's when I talk a lot about where where the inspiration for my book came from just like you know obviously it's dystopian there's all these other elements that that aren't related to me personally but when i just think about like the heart of where the book came i just wanted to write into like so much shame that i had from how much i hurt people and lied to people and people that you know claim to love and and that i do think i loved and 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 then even piecing that apart like what does that mean like how Am I able to determine if I love someone, if I was, if I lied to them or was unfaithful? Um, And like, yeah, I still feel really guilty just about all of it. Like all of college, my early twenties and, um, and the ways in which other people's forgiveness hasn't alleviated my own shame and um, trying to come to terms with like, someone can't do that for me like even if they forgive me and and truly like mean it um that doesn't do anything to take the weight off because i'm putting i'm the one putting the weight there 
they yeah. aren't. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like for a while, like, especially when I was younger, I thought like I can get past the shame if, uh, you know, if I feel some type of forgiveness, but um, that wasn't the case. So I, I've just been carrying around all this shame like a shadow. Um, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I guess that was really like what I was writing into as far as like the psychological part. Um, when people ask me that, I say like, I've heard a lot of people in my past, like, um, how do you reconcile that with who you are, what you value, how you want to treat people? It really stands out to me what you said about the, um, like other people's forgiveness doesn't alleviate it because you're sort of enacting your own punishment at this point. Right. And it made me think like, okay, you know, how, what is your penance? Like how long is your sentence? Mm. And it's so wild that you ended up marrying someone and like having a family with a child with someone that is attached to this shame narrative because it's almost like, like I could see it manifesting like, well, I can be happy, but I always have to be like a little bit punished you yeah. know, by the constant <laughs> reminder. But it's like you don't like at any point you could forgive yourself. You know what I mean? But yeah. it just it's it's like you've created a situation in which I wonder, like cosmically, you know, intrapsychically, whatever, if there's some way where it's presenting you with circumstances where like you ha- you're confronted with the fact that if you want to forgive yourself, like you're going to have to do it. And otherwise, yeah. you can just you can always torture yourself forever if you prefer instead. <laughs> yeah, I think like I just tell myself like I'll know when my punishment time is done. Like, <laughs> like I'm in time out, but then I'm like, I'll I'll have a feeling when it's over. Like, <laughs> oh know, my god! And and just to speak to the like other people forgiving me thing, like it's also then there's like a level of I never want to burden somebody else, like. You don't want to go to somebody you've hurt and then be like, can you please forgive me? Um, That's extra like emotional labor and pain for them. So that's like extra burden. So then it's like, uh, you don't want to ask anybody. Like at that time when I thought that that might might be helpful, I was never going to reach out to people and be like, hey, I know I was a complete fucking asshole, but I'm really sorry. And can you please forgive me? Because I'm dealing with my own shame. I'd be like, fuck off. Um, So then it was like, there's an isolation to shame, right? That totally. is like a like a petri dish for for it to just keep growing. It's like it's just in this like perfect little little glass dish, and it's just growing this bacteria, and it's just like in you. Oh my god! Yes, I love that <laughs> metaphor. It's so right to me, <laughs> and oh, that idea of you sort of being like looking at you in the timeout chair being like I'll decide when this is up it made me wonder what's in it for you psychically like are do do you think there's a part of you that is afraid that if you forgive yourself if you stop punishing then you'll cheat again like that you need the need the bad feeling to keep yourself in line I don't think so. Cause it's like over the years as I've healed from all of these things, like that impulse has completely gone away. Mm. Um, you know, it, it was, 
a maladaptive coping skill in the way that drinking and, and doing substances and can be. I and I don't mean to like compare it and be like sex addiction, but just like <clears throat> the behavior felt like a uh, an unhealthy coping skill for other things. Yeah. So, so like I I don't think it's that like because I really don't even have that impulse anymore. It's almost like remember where you've been. Like I don't <laughs> I don't even I don't even know. I honestly like you know I spend a great deal of my waking hours trying to piece this apart. You do. <laughs> Yeah, I'm one of those like people that like just cannot stop perseverating, like and can like I'm always just poking at myself, like what's this about, and like what's this about. So like, I wish I knew. Yeah, so you have anxiety. (laughs) You have you have like a good amount of anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To bring full circle, I I have anxiety disorder. (laughs) As do I. So is that what you're trying to do? Like at, when you're perseverating, what's the answer you're looking for? Like, are you trying to figure out why it happened? Like what it means about you? What would be the metric for forgiving yourself? Like what's the, what's the cycle that's happening in there? Um, it's mostly like the whys, like just digging into like, I know like why I've done most things in my life. Like that's, I've solidified those things, but then it's like the why, the afterward, the why am I still focused on why I did that? What, like, like the whys within oh. the whys within the whys. Like, like you're obsessing about why you can't stop thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's just yeah. like, yeah, just like in truth. Well, I just, I have OCD and that just, I feel like that's such the crux of like an intuitive thought where it's like almost not even about the content anymore. It's just about the obsession and anxiety living inside this little box that has been trained to scoop up all the anxiety, to like suck it in, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is like, why do I like punishment? Uh, Yeah. Like trying to figure out why you like punishment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for a different different time. <laughs> I mean, I feel I think about that all the time too. I really do. And I feel like it's so layered and deep and different for everyone. But yeah, I mean there is like such shame stuff involved with that. Like having a core sort of sense of badness that doesn't Mm. come from nowhere like it's kind of cultivated as a young person um and then i don't know like i think that there's a way that if you have that if you're punishing yourself it can feel like like this is correct like this is how it's supposed to go and maybe i'm a little bit absolved because at least i'm like punishing myself not out here trying to act like i'm some great person you know, <laughs> like I deserve love, you know, <laughs> that would be absolutely insane <laughs> in such a way <laughs> in that manner. Oh, my God. Out here on the streets. <laughs> oh, my God. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> As you've gotten older, like, I feel like my my relationship to self-punishment, I've I've been 
working on it so hard over the past like 10 years. And I feel like I've made a lot of progress in some ways and in other insidious ways, like not so much. Like it's almost like what primarily what's left for me is just like nicotine and like self self-loathing thoughts like are the weapons I use to hurt myself like wh- how about for you like what's it what's weapons. still <laughs> I did see your thing about vaping and how you couldn't leave the house because you can get to sleep <laughs> I mean do what you gotta do I'm it's really painful I'm quitting and I'm right now quitting it's really hard are um, you ugh, it's horrible what's <sighs> left in your arsenal like what do you still use to sort of try to punish yourself at this stage arsenal so much of is it internal i'm not even sure i can point to like a mm-hmm. behavior um maybe sometimes like excessive exercise um oh. i've always like struggled with things like that but um Sometimes I think like I can use it in a punishing way and not related to food. Like, like I, I realize that there's a lot of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, disordered eating around like compensatory behaviors, but it's more like just in isolation, punish myself for other things that I feel um, like I've done. Like if I can like beat up my body. Yeah. Um, and like not just excessive exercise, like running hard or something, something that like is going to hurt the next day, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost a relief, isn't it? Sometimes if like, if you can concretize the shit you feel inside, like in your body aching, it's yeah. almost kind of like, oh, okay. And I feel like for me, that's so connected to having been an athlete for my whole life. Like, mm-hmm. and now I don't have that outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, ever since I could walk, I was basically dribbling a basketball and then playing soccer and everything like that. So there always was this sort of like really aggressive way to, to channel like rage and everything like that, but also to self punish, like to get mm-hmm. the shit kicked out of you. Um, and then I found rugby right before I met my wife. And that's like the ultimate way to get the shit kicked out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which I found that people like rugby is very addictive. I think for that reason, because what the hell else gives you like that level of um, like arousal and stimulation and vitality. But yeah, Yeah. I feel like um, that impulse to feel it in my body, like comes from sports, feeling really sore the next day, feeling really sore after like a hard workout. It feels like you like earned something like Mm. there's that level of like deserving and earning. Yeah. um, That I feel like sort of comes from that sports element. When I was in my early and mid twenties and was like a really dark place, it was before I got sober. I used to. There was this whole period of time where I basically started like a fight. Like it was like a queer fight club where not like we wouldn't like meet anywhere, but basically we would all get drunk and then I would like instigate everybody beating each other up, and it was like so satisfying. It was amazing. Did you participate or you just like refereed no. and you're like everybody beat each other? <laughs> no, no, I participated. Okay. And like we would, yeah, like punch each other and like slap each other as hard as we could, spit beer in each other's faces. It was like mayhem. And then we would wake up with like bruises everywhere. And I remember feeling like 
like I loved it, you know, and I was like in so much psychological pain, but it felt, I think about it all the time because I'm like, what was that giving space for that? I wasn't letting myself contact in other ways, you know? Totally. And I'm not going to lie. Like that sounds pretty appealing. I know me too. When you were just talking about rugby, I was like, I got to do that. Like I got to get someone to just like hit me so hard, but like <laughs> I'm choosing it, you know? Yeah. I was just saying you got to tackle people too. or else No, I want to tackle people. Too, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I have a, one of my close friends like has played rugby like a tiny bit. We know each other from college. She played basketball and like, she like doesn't like to be touched, but like her and her wife are like playing this rugby league together. And her wife is like really tiny, but she played like tackle football for a really long time. And she like loves to tackle, like loves getting hit. And my friend is like 5'10, like like more built, and like she doesn't want anyone to touch her. And I'm like, why are you playing the game of rugby? Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm always teasing her about it. She's like, oh yeah, my team got mad at me because I like didn't want to tackle this person. And I just tried to go for the steal. And I was like, they're gonna hate you so bad, man. I was like, get out of that sport. And her wife's like, no, I want her here. And I'm like, no, why? <laughs> That's really funny. I feel like there was a whole period and like around like 2010 or something where I, where I was like, oh, I got to do roller derby, like similar oh. impulse, you know, but I liked the costumes. I was kind of like, it's that same, like, I'm going to get fucked up, but with a little bit more like theater kid flair. <laughs> that That is another one. Like roller derby is really appealing for me mm-hmm. for that reason. Like I've never done it, but I've like gotten to the point where I'm like looking up San Diego. Is there queer roller derby? Like it's it's the same thing. It's like, which thing will get me the most like, physical outlet and like have yeah. get have me get hit <laughs> like just empty like pull you out of your fucking brain like oh, i feel like that's yes that's it like just these like moments of silence and absolute brutality like thinking about nothing else but just like surviving even though like yes you know. just like get me out of here get me out yeah. of this prison of skin Literally. like oh <laughs> i think about that all the time <laughs> get me out of this meat suit like, get me I, out of this meat suit I have these rugby friends um, like so my wife played rugby for like 18 years but she doesn't play anymore um, because she would die um, but like people try to play for a really long time even though it's like not really a sport conducive to playing a long time it's not mm-hmm. baseball And like, but it's because it's like impossible to quit. Like once you know Mm -hmm. that feeling, like I feel like more than other sports, like having played basketball for my entire life, like I loved it. And it was this like high for me. But then when I tried rugby the first time, I was like, this is next level. Like, this is not like anything I've ever experienced before. And I can see how like it can just create the psychological dependence. And I, Mm -hmm. so there's all these people who are like sort of refusing to retire or like will retire for a season then be like coming back again next season it's just like you can't stay away and it's like just you're just like what's everyone dealing with yeah. like oh my god this makes me feel like i should not try rugby because i'm such an <laughs> addict like it would be too good for me it would be way too good and then you okay. would be like trying to be like 50 and like still be playing and you just like and you can't be 50 and play rugby I mean, you can. 
You can. But it's like your bone, like your body gets more breakable as you get older, I guess. Yeah. One of my friends is still playing and she's like in her late 40s. But like, I don't know how she does it. And it like, I'm afraid for her. (laughs) Um, But she doesn't play at like a super, there's so many levels. Like she doesn't play at a super competitive. I think it's like the lowest, like sort of for fun like level that you can okay. possibly play rugby at, but you're still tackling and getting tackled at the end of the day. But um that I think it's a lot so more fun. like the social side. Yeah. Usually like you play a game and you know everybody goes and drinks together and that's a whole other thing that drinking is tied mm. to rugby in a very, very intricate way. Yeah. <laughs> I've I can imagine. I've never played a sport where you drink with the other team directly after your game really every time every time every time that's part of the the cultural norm of it yeah it's called like the social so like you go party with the other team right after like in your dirty rugby clothes like you always there's like sometimes themes but like you just like go covered in mud and like blood i don't know and like so, they drink out of boots, like to boots. celebrate someone's like like cleats. Um, <laughs> the first time you score a try, which is like the like touchdown, like if you're a rookie or whatever, they make you like chug a beer out of a dirty cleat. Um, mm. So I had to do that, and then at our wedding, my wife's best friend surprised her and brought out a dirty boots that she had to chug beer out of at your wedding yeah like in her wedding dress like i don't remember if it was like after our first dance like whatever but it was like in front of everybody on the dance floor and she like (laughs) chugged out of this disgusting rugby that is the gayest thing i've ever heard it's so gay (laughs) i love it see i feel like i know nothing about this world because i was very siloed in my little like like kind of like artsy queer community you know and I feel like you are so fascinating to me for many reasons but one of which is that you are like an athlete queer and like an angsty literary queer (laughs) and I feel like you're a unicorn in that way and you have you've probably experienced like such a wide spectrum of queer community because of that yeah it's (laughs) it's sort of funny though because like well, we're like opposite in that way. Like I never was in an artsy queer community for most of my life because I was so focused on sports. And I also didn't think that the two could like coexist. Mm-hmm. Like it's another thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's just like, you know, the inner workings of identity. But like, um, I thought that like, if you're a jock, like you're a jock and like people assign you you know, there's stereotypes about jocks. We're not smart. We can't read, like, whatever. And those are things that I've always tried, like, not to internalize and be like, no, I'm a smart person. And, like, this is untrue. You know, and then in the literary world, like, there is sort of some hatred about sports or thinking it's, like, not literary or, or thinking it's lowbrow, like, all of these different sort of things. Mm-hmm. And I was just, like, having trouble and navigating being these two things and... I didn't think that you could write seriously about sports. Like, I just thought that that wasn't going to be possible for me. So I avoided writing about basketball for years, which is in, like just unbelievable because it's like my entire life. 
or was my entire life for like 20 years. So I was like, um, am I just going to pretend this didn't happen? Mm-hmm. So my, my second novel um, that I'm like basically done with, I've done a few drafts of it. It's it's like a queer coming of age basketball novel because I was like I'm just gonna lean into this oh. like um like it's it's literary but it's like yeah it's about queer teenagers playing basketball oh my god um, I love it yeah I was like I'm not gonna shy away from this thing like I'm you know it's part of my experience and who I am and yeah. the literary world doesn't like it they don't like it or whatever yeah but but I've found so many athletes like in the writing world and I feel like it. I don't want to say it's a shameful thing because I don't want to like project onto other people. Um, but I feel like it's like I've had to pull it out of some people. Like maybe they aren't like advertising or something, but then they're like, oh, totally. I ran track in college. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I've been speaking to to more writers like about this. And um, when I went to AWP, they have a pickup basketball game that they've been doing every year for like 12 years that I didn't know about. And then someone like invited me to it. Um, so I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I really like seeing these sort of communities pop up, um, and like That's the marriage so cool. of those worlds. Yeah. I love that. Um, I know it's so embedded in just like high school click forming. Like, it's like, like when you were first talking about like, yeah, if you're a jock or you're like an art yeah. kid, it's like very breakfast club, you know? And it's like, this whole that's like so shame related to like i feel like the way people are like okay like i've stabilized who i am and that's all i'm supposed to be and it's so ridiculous it's like obviously we all contain multitudes it's it's absurd it is it's so true and like i really liked writing from a young age and i wasn't necessarily like ashamed of it but i wasn't just like telling anybody really and I also wasn't Mm. didn't think it was something I was allowed to do or like Mm. could do I I don't know I was like basketball 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 and then I would like write all these like really depressed poems like and fill these notebooks Um, (laughs) and like you know inspired by like I feel like bright eyes lyrics and like and like newfound glory and dashboard um (laughs) Mm-hmm. but yeah so I don't know and like when I was really little like I told my parents I was going to be an author and illustrate my own books but I also said I was going to be in the WNBA and they were like cool whatever um they were like pretty good about whatever you want like you know do it go for it cool cool but as I got older and it was much more like you have to focus on basketball, like if you want to get a scholarship and like go play in college and like da da da. Like they start just pigeonholing you. Yeah, you have to do this year round, and this is like the only thing that you can really do, and it has to be your entire life. Um, and I was still like write poems, but I was like, oh, I guess this is something that I can never like do anything with. And then yeah. I, and then I got to college, and I'm like declaring a major, and I'm like. I want to do writing or English. And I was like, no one can be a writer. That's absurd. Like, I was like, you're not allowed to do that. That's not a career. And I was like, that would be ridiculous to major in this type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it was like a lot of like talking myself out of circumstances, I guess. Yeah. But I'd be like, I wrote like a whole novel on my computer when I was 18 about this really stupid lesbian love triangle that I was in. And then I oh like, my God. deleted it, I think. <gasps> no, you deleted it? 
Okay, because I was immediately like, can we do some kind of staged reading that will be really (laughs) funny, please? It was like very um, Brett Easton Ellis less than zero E. Did you Uh read that? I don't think so. It sounds so Um, familiar, but I don't know it. It was like his first book. He wrote it when he was like 18. Um, Okay. It's just like really nihilistic and like. So like, yeah, like the voice of my narrator was like nihilistic, I think, in sort of the same way, especially because like I found that book at that time and like loved it in the way that you just mimic your favorite book. Oh, yeah. Another book that's just like. Totally. And I think because I didn't really like know how to find queer literature and I like read that book and was surprised that there were like bisexuals in it and stuff. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I didn't even think that you could write queer stuff when I was 18. Yeah. Um, I know, totally. That's how I feel about when I found Eileen Miles. Like I I was probably I think I I didn't read any of her until I was like 23. I was writing a lot of creative nonfiction. And so like all the stories I wrote when I was 23, they all just sound like Eileen Miles, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like to You're an amazing. absurd degree. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um okay. We've mentioned it multiple times, but just tell the listeners like a tiny little bit about your book. Okay. Yeah. If everybody's made it this far, <laughs> it's called I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself. Um, it is a a literary novel with a speculative bent, and it, it has a dystopian setting. Real quick, I've been working on this pitch. It's so hard to get short. But it's a world where there's no prisons anymore. And in lieu of that, the government who's oppressive and corrupt gives people extra shadows for harming people. Harming is in quotes. Um, much like our government, they they target cert- certain marginalized people more than others. Um, and the shadow is stuck to you forever. And it has two purposes. It's meant to shame you, remind you of what you've done so that you can never move on. And then it also serves as a sort of visual warning to other people who might see you they see that you have an extra shadow and they're you know they'll be suspicious or sort of like on edge okay i don't know you know if this person is someone i want to be around which can then just obviously amplify all of that shame um so that's the world (laughs) the narrator already has an extra shadow and the book opens where her wife dies giving birth to their baby and the government punishes the baby claiming that the baby killed the mom and gives the baby an extra shadow so what ensues after that is this story of grief but also hope and community and love the ways of queer joy the ways that we can overcome oppression and our circumstances and um identity all of these different things I thought um, that was a great pitch. That was thank awesome. you. It's so hard because I'm like, it's really here's the hard. world, and then here's what happens. Ready, go. It's really difficult. I <laughs> love it. I love I love the pitch, and I love the book. And I, I really think that if you like this podcast, like the people listening who are like weekly listeners, especially, you will love the book. You really will. It's, it's on brand with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing. Um. Okay, Mac, is there anything that we talked about today that I said, that you said, that was just kind of floating around in the ether of our conversation that made you have a little meta shame spiral? 
or that you think could later if you're like debriefing what we talked about? Sure. I, I think <clears throat> maybe probably what will give me a tiny shame spiral after this is like, if God forbid, like my ex-partner, my wife's ex-partner somehow stumbled upon this podcast, which is like basically impossible, but it would be like if they stumbled upon it and, and had to hear this story um, that I told, that would make me feel really hmm. bad and ashamed and sort of probably send me years back. And really? <laughs> I mean, no, but I would, yeah, it would be really disruptive to, I think like, a place I've been trying to get to, but, mm. but that's totally like that fantasy thing. Like they're not going to listen to it and they don't even uh, follow me on anything. Yeah. Well, beyond um, that too, it's the fantasy of if they did listen to it, that it would further harm them, which is such an interesting right. fantasy because your what you talked about on here is how you're still rife with shame and guilt and remorse. So it's like, <laughs> How is it so curious that that then translates to like they will be harmed, <clears throat> right? And it's also like self centered and mm-hmm. egotistical of me to assume that I even have that power. That power, they might be like, "Good, suffer." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who knows? But I doubt that they will feel like. Yeah, it's just that's, it's all a product of the shape. Sorry, I take that. <laughs> don't perseverate on that horrible joke I just made, please. They do not want you to suffer. Um, no, no, no. It's, it's, they wouldn't say that, but it's really funny because real quick, a few months ago, we started swim lessons with my toddler and my wife couldn't come to the first one. And she was just like, go to this place da, da, da. It's at this time. I take him. And the only other person in this class is her ex with her toddler. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, she, she was so nice. And like, she was. So, yeah. Um, like, she's married, you know, has this toddler. But like, it was hilarious. We were the only two people in the class. Mm. And she waved to me like I was walking up and like carrying my kid and like I couldn't really see. And then I saw like someone like, oh, hey. And I was like. What? Oh, my God. What <laughs> did then, you like, feel? <laughs> like. Like a mixture of like, like, j- like dark humor, like almost just enjoying that somehow this circumstances happened. Yeah. Um, and then also like moral terror. Like I was just totally. like, why is this happening to me? Yeah. Um, and it felt like funnier without my wife there. Um, mm-hmm. So then the whole time in the class, it was also like her kid listened really, really well. And he was very patient, and very calm. And my kid climbed out of the pool, ran away, slipped on the, on the, on the ground, like had all of these like mishaps. Like he looked like a cartoon character. He refused mm-hmm. to like do any of the swimming lesson. And I was like, she's probably loving this. Like uh-huh. I was, I'm sitting there. He's like screaming. I'm in the water. He's like, Rah! and her kid's like, okay, mommy, ready to jump in now. Like in your, in your head, she's like, that's the kid you guys deserve. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm making all that up because she is just like a sweet person who is just like, wow, it was so nice to see you at swim lessons. And like my idea of what she's thinking is just Mm -hmm. not reality. Yeah. 
Totally. It's just like a characterization of your shame. Like your shame wrote a little story and it's all about how you're a terrible person. And she (laughs) she becomes the little puppet in your story. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. It's so relatable. Um, How do you feel right now as we're ending? I feel good. I'm, this is really nice. Um, It feels like we've just been two friends who have been hanging out and talking, which is my favorite way to do something like this. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I feel really like, I don't know what, sort of energized. It's been really great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shame Spiral. You can follow the pod at Pod Shame Spiral on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the usual places. This episode was edited by myself and Sarah Gabrielli. And original music was by Shadwick Wild. Please keep listening and rate and review if you're feeling generous. I have so many exciting guests lined up for our season. Thank you again for joining us and spiral on, but not too much, okay? 